Welcome to the Word of Life AG podcast. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Today, Pastor Tom addresses the issue of passion in our faith. But first, if you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. That's wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. We're so glad you're getting caught up. So let's get right into today's message. Pastor Tom has titled, The Passion Project. So I believe that the message of Jesus is the greatest news anyone could ever hear. When I responded to the gospel and at 19 years old, I made the decision to follow Jesus, it was easily the best decision that I have ever made. Last week, if you were here in part of service, I shared a message on the difficulties of following Jesus and why it's difficult to follow Jesus. And one of the points that I made as part of that message was to be passionate. And while I agree with that, and I think that it was an important part of the message, on Sunday afternoon, I realized that the, the call to be passionate, it warrants explanation and further consideration. Just saying be passionate isn't very helpful. It's like saying to someone with a broken leg, hey, you shouldn't have a broken leg. Or someone has lost their car keys, like, hey, wouldn't it be great if you had found your car keys? Or saying for Sunday lunch, let's go to Chick-fil-A. It's not very helpful. So I started praying about the importance of passion in our faith. And I believe that there's some helpful things for me to share with you today. And in our pursuit of Jesus, we should ask the question, we should wonder, what role does passion play? And furthermore, how can we gain and build and sustain this passion for Jesus in our lives, not just for today, but over a lifetime? And the first thing I would say is simply, passionate faith is normal faith. Passionate faith is normal faith. Here's a great quote from C.S. Lewis, who's British, which means you know you can trust him. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Being passionate about what God has done in your life is regular. Being passionate about how God has set you free is expected and logical. What doesn't make sense is a half-hearted, casual approach to faith. Apathy and polite moderation doesn't make sense. But a true, sincere, deep passion, the, the type of passion that transcends season, a passion that is proven by enduring over a lifetime, that's what makes sense. And one of the things that I shared last week is that passion is measured in endurance, not volume. Passion is not as two-dimensional as being excitable or happy. Happiness or excitability, it comes from something temporal, something that's happening out there somewhere. For instance, like a birthday party can be exciting, or a nice dessert can bring happiness, or something you've wanted to buy for a long time going on sale. These things can be exciting, but that's not passion. Passion is much deeper and richer than that. Passion is not shallow or painted on, but it speaks to a depth it speaks to something that's life-defining. I've titled today The Passion Project, and a passion project may typically be a term used to describe a, a side business or a home project. It isn't necessarily something that makes any money or achieve anything except providing something fun or fulfilling to do. It might mean selling something on Etsy. It could be restoring a classic car. It could be finally learning how to tap dance. 
But I'm using the term today not to describe a small business or building a skate park in your backyard, but because we need to bring passion back to the church. Believers need to reconnect with the passion around our faith. Our passion project is reinvigorating passion back into the church. We need to reinstate what's been lost. We need to remember that passionate faith is normal faith. Now, if you go to the Bible, oftentimes I use a website, uh, BibleGateway.com, and um, it's a great uh, website and a great resource, and you can type in certain words, and it'll give you every instance in the Bible where that word is used. And if you were to search for the word passion, you'll see that um, it's normally used in the Bible to denote sinful passions or sinful desires, and of course, that's not what I'm talking about today. But interestingly, the English word passion has its roots in a Latin word for suffering, That's why the crucifixion of Jesus is often called the passion, and that's, of course, where the title of the movie came from. But we all understand how the word passion is used in our modern vernacular. So searching the Bible for the word passion might not give us the insight we're looking for. So to consider what the Bible has to say about passion, I looked for instances where passion was demonstrated by people, and there was no shortage of examples. One day, a shepherd boy goes to see how his brothers are doing in battle. When he gets there, he finds out that the army is terrified of a giant Philistine. So young David goes and talks to the king. In 1 Samuel, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul, who was the king. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. That's a great Bible verse to put on a coffee cup. (laughs) I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescues me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. And of course, we know how David and Goliath ended. Later on in the Bible, there's another story. While in captivity in Babylon, three young Hebrew boys are pressured to adjust and acquiesce to idol worship. But these three men are faithful to God and they refuse. Some of the royal advisors, they take objection to this and go to the king in hopes that he punishes them. And this is from the book of Daniel in chapter 3. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issue a decree requiring the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you. Your majesty, they refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace." And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but 
even if he doesn't, we want to make clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nehemiah, while he was rebuilding the wall, after the Babylonian empire swept through Jerusalem, the destruction was devastating. And years later, Nehemiah made it his mission to rebuild the temple and the wall around Jerusalem. Some of the neighboring nations took objection to this and tried to prevent his progress. From the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained. This is the security wall around the city. Though we had not set up the doors in the gates, so Sambalat and Geshev sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. Also, there's a familiar passage that we'll all know from Christmas and the Nativity. But the shepherds said they see a spectacle of the host of angels, the armies of heaven. They then go to Bethlehem to see the newborn Jesus. In Luke 2, they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. And then into the ministry of Jesus, there's a well-known story about four friends who, it seems, would do anything they needed to do to get their friend to Jesus. From Mark 2, when Jesus returned to Capernaum seven days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon, the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Passion. It showed itself in David's courage and confidence in the Lord. Passion was there in the steely resolve of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they refused to bow to the idols of Babylon. Passion was there as Nehemiah took the responsibility of rebuilding the wall with unwavering diligence and repeatedly rejecting the distractions. Passion was seen and heard from the shepherds as they couldn't keep the news of the newborn Messiah that they had just seen to themselves and they told anyone and everyone that they could. Passion inspired four friends not only to carry their friend to go and see Jesus, but also to carry him up on the roof and then to make a hole in the roof and lower him down to Jesus because they trusted that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, a miracle could happen. There are, of course, many, many other examples that belong in this list. But one more time, I say, passionate faith is normal faith. Now, not to so necessarily a specialness of the biblical characters, this passionate faith isn't just for those holy few that we see in the scriptures, but I believe that they're there to give us an example. Here's a verse from the book of Romans that's full of passion. And if you have a Bible, if you can go ahead and open up to Romans 12. If you have a Bible app on your phone, go ahead, Romans 12. We're going to be there for just a moment. Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. 
Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Don't pretend, but really love others. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Never be lazy. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. These are words of passion. These are words that provoke a strong response. It's not weak or timid. It's not passive or watered down. Now, if you have that verse open in your Bible or on the Bible app, keep it open. Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Imagine reading that verse with the passion taken away. And so I want to share with you is the dispassionate misreading of Romans 12. Be nice to people. Be unmoved about what is wrong. And also be indifferent about what is right. Be polite to other Christians. Turn up when you have to and serve the Lord as and when it's convenient. Try to look on the bright side. Maybe the trouble you face won't be too bad and you might as well pray about it if you feel like it. Faith without passion. It's ineffective. It's unappealing. It's uninspiring. Weak. It's even forgettable. A dispassionate kind of faith doesn't change lives. A relationship with Jesus that lacks any passion or sincerity or gratitude or amazement won't reach the community and the world around us. The students at Baker High School aren't concerned about a nice, polite, introspective, orderly kind of Christianity. Your co-workers aren't inspired to question their relationship with God because of someone's convenient kind of faith. I've been talking for probably a year now about how deeply moved I've been by um, Jesus' revolution. Um, It came out as a movie uh, right around this time last year and went on to be very successful for a small independent Christian film. Um, But the book that I read even the summer before, deeply moving. It talks about the uh, move of God that happened in the late 60s and early 70s, starting on the West Coast in California, where hippies all over the place who had been searching for love in all the wrong places suddenly came to churches, heard the gospel, and realized this is what we've been looking for. Getting high is not the answer. Being promiscuous is not the answer. The message of Jesus, this is the love we have desperately been searching for. And the people that take the time to keep track of these kind of things and research these kind of things have told us that as many as a quarter of a million people were baptized as a part of what we now know as the Jesus movement. And so this movie, Jesus Revolution, it moves me deeply, especially the, if you've seen the movie, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, the, the scenes on the beach where there were just hundreds and hundreds of kids getting baptized in the ocean. It moves me deeply because it's so easy to see that the world today and the world 50 years ago, the similarities are right there. The polarization between one generation and the next, the grown-ups like tutting and getting frustrated with young people today, like kids today, what on earth is going on? And all this, the division between the older and younger and the political division, all those things were very present in the late 60s and early 70s in the United States. And in that environment, God moved. God moved in a powerful way. And even though I've been deeply stirred by this movie, and I really believe it's given me a a real motive to start praying, Lord, if you could do it, then you can definitely do it now. The kind of faith that is going to energize that kind of movement, the kind of faith that kind of movement produces, is not nice, polite, quiet, tucked in, orderly. No, it's a passionate, extravagant, sincere faith moving in the hearts of believers. If we're passionate for Jesus... And we're passionate about what he's doing in Baldwinsville and central New York. And we're figuring out together what it means to fully embrace the kingdom of God in our everyday lives. That's the kind of Christianity that is difficult to ignore in the best possible way. Now, why does the message of Jesus inspire passion? I've got three reasons. The first one, 
The message of Jesus inspires passion because of its importance. The message of Jesus inspires passion because of its importance. My kids are at the age now where they're asking me all the difficult questions about faith. And the amount of times I say, "Uh, go ask your mom, is getting higher and higher. But they'll ask questions about God. And, you know, there are things that are difficult to answer, shall we say. They'll ask things like, if God was not created, how has he existed for all eternity? Somewhere they heard the word omnipresence, that God exists everywhere. The Bible verse that tells us that God has numbered every hair on our heads. These are things that our kids have questions about. The idea that God created not only everything on earth, but also the entire universe. These are the kind of things that are on the kid's mind. And there's nothing more powerful or knowledgeable or important than the Lord God Almighty. That's what comes from these questions. And when I was originally sort of writing my notes about this and sort of this idea of, you know, the kids asking these questions about the, the, magnus, uh, the majesty and the magnificence of God, it got me to the point of thinking, okay, there is nothing that compares to God. And then I caught myself because Jesus says, approach God like you would a loving father. So even though in God's majesty and his power and his sovereignty, there is none that compares, Jesus tells us, approach him as father. And what we can learn about him is that he is indeed a loving father. That in his power, in his awesomeness, he is motivated by a love for humanity. And he sent his son to pay the price on the cross so we could restore our relationship with him and find our place in the kingdom of God. And Jesus illustrates this idea in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Now these pair of parables, they obviously make the same point. That when someone found the treasure or someone found the pearl, they understood that what they had found was more valuable than everything they had to their name. Giving up everything they had was an easy decision because they had found something better. This is the value. This is the priority. This is the importance When you find the kingdom of God, there is nothing more important. And Jesus told the people to count the cost in Luke 14. But don't begin following me until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Have we counted the cost? What about your old life as God asked you to leave behind? What is it going to cost to declare Jesus as Lord? How will your life change if you do indeed follow Jesus and recognize that he is high and above any other? There is no debate about whether Jesus is right or wrong here. There is definitely a cost to following him. But the cost pales in comparison to what we find in him. The parables about the treasure and the pearls, it gives us the correct and appropriate response. And that illustration, the importance of what we have found. And once we esteem and respect the value and the importance of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus, and we realize and trust and believe that because of his grace and love and kindness I am included in, of course, passion is inspired within us. The second thing I have, the message of Jesus inspires passion because of its implications. Because of its implications, I have a ridiculous example to share with you. When Megan and I lived in New York City about 10 years ago, you could go to see some Yankees games for $2. And this wasn't the 1930s, this was like 10 years ago. But if it's like just a nothing game on a Tuesday night, you know, in April, it's kind of cold still in the city, you can easily get tickets up in the nosebleeds for $2. 
I've also been to see um, friendly soccer games before. I got to see a game in New Jersey where it was, um, uh, it was the USA versus Colombia. It was a friendly game. It was just kind of like a preseason thing. I've seen England play a national soccer game before. It's kind of just a friendly. But then I've also been to some sporting events where it's a final or it's a playoff game. And it's night and day difference. When a game has no implications, it's fun. It's good to go to. But if you go and there's something on the line, oh my goodness, it's electric. It's a different atmosphere altogether. It's the same team, it's the same stadium, but there's different implications. Now that of course is a ridiculous example, but we get that the greater the implications, the strength and intensity of the passion that comes out. The buzzwords and cliches around Christianity are not just empty words or vacuous theories. Words like freedom, peace, Hope, joy, purpose, restored. They are not and should not be treated as empty or frivolous. This is the message of Jesus. And this has real life, tangible implications. This verse from 1 Corinthians always inspires me. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It's not just theories. We're not just talking around concepts and ideas. It is living by God's power. It's not just hot air and hypothetical. There's real power, the power to change lives and bring about all the promises of God. It's not just talk. It's not just lofty ideas, but there is real substance and impact and implications to the message of Jesus. We should never be blasé or indifferent to the gospel. This is the introduction of a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And he highlights the real, tangible, observable transformation that the gospel has had for these believers. From 1 Thessalonians, we always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. What has happened in their lives is observable and real. Paul notes that he thanks God for what has happened. They're now performing faithful works and loving deeds. That the hope they have in Jesus is the kind of hope that produces endurance. And Paul even remembers that when he was with them, first telling them the good news of Jesus... He worked and showed them through actions the goodness of God and also he ministered with the power of the Holy Spirit. This completely destroys any suggestion that the message of Jesus is a futile theory or a nice-sounding concept or a lot of empty talk. Now, the message of Jesus makes a difference and we see the effects of true change in people's hearts and minds. The gospel unquestionably has implications and these implications, the transformation and sanctification and the spiritual empowerment all inspire passion. The message of Jesus inspires passion because of its importance and its implications. And thirdly, the message of Jesus inspires passion because of its mission. This is from Christopher Wright, who's one of my favorite authors. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Mission from the point of view of our human endeavor means the committed participation of God's people in the purposes of God for the redemption of the whole creation, 
The mission is God's. The marvel is that God invites us to join in. Now think of all that God has done in your life. Think of the ways God has used different people to make a difference in your life as you follow Him. A true joy of following Jesus is knowing that He will use you to make a difference in the lives of others. We've all benefited from the faithfulness of others. Now we are able to do the same. We need to be done with the myth that church leaders are the only ones who perform ministry. The whole church is called and empowered to get busy with the Lord's work. A number of years ago, I heard at a pastor's conference, someone say that a mistake the church has fallen into is believing that church members should outsource the ministry to church employees. The word outsource stuck with me. It perfectly critiques the mindset that the pastors and church leaders are the ones who are to perform and who are positioned to do all the ministry that churches should be active with. The idea that churches are full of people who value the work of the ministry, but would rather that work be carried out by others, the professional church people. We need to leave that mindset behind. A friend of mine had a great perspective on this. When Megan and I were living in Oregon, became friendly with a guy who was an associate pastor of the church we were a part of, and um, he told me that when he first went for an interview for his first pastoral position, he was currently working in construction, and one of the questions they put to him as he was getting ready for this very first appointment that he would have as a pastor, they said, how do you feel about going into full-time ministry? And my friend said to them, okay, we got to get one thing straight. I am going to be leaving full-time ministry to go into full-time church work. I am going to be leaving my mission field to come and help lead the church. Let's get this right. This is not full-time mission field. Full-time mission field is on the construction site. This is church work, which is great. If that's what you're called to, please do it. But this is not the only kind of mission field there is. I thought that was such a great perspective, and I would love to have been there to have seen how the people interviewing him for this church position would have responded. But God is at work in all things, including the day-to-day -day routine moments. We should constantly ask and pray, God, what are you doing in this moment? A step further than that is being ready to anticipate being involved in whatever it is that God is doing. There's a wonderful quote from Experiencing God, which is a fantastic book. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's been working throughout history to accomplish his purposes. He does not ask us to dream our dreams for him. He does not invite us to set magnificent goals and then pray that he will help us achieve them. He already has his own agenda, and when he approaches us, his desire is to get us from where we are to where he is working. He leads us from being self-centered to being God-centered. When God reveals to you where he is working, that becomes his invitation to join him in his activity. When God reveals his work to you, that is the time to respond to him. It is right and appropriate to expect and anticipate God to be working in each and every room that we walk into. The question that we should be asking, the prayer we should be praying is, Lord, how can I get involved? God is always working, and we should always anticipate opportunities to join him. What does this mean to be involved? What does it mean to join him? Well, it may be something dramatic, or it may be something subtle. It might be emotional. It might be reserved. It might involve a group of people or an individual. It may be something you say or something you do. It might be quick. It may end up being a long-term commitment. It may be someone you know, it may be a complete stranger. It might be encouraging someone that's having a tough day. 
The Lord may have worked in the heart of people and then are ready to make the decision to follow Jesus. And you may be the person that the Lord brought to them to help them make that decision and to pray to begin a new life following Jesus. Maybe you have a word of knowledge that someone needs and it cuts through a whole mess of confusion to bring clarity and understanding. Maybe you find out someone has a need and you're able to meet that need. Maybe someone is desperate for help and you know how to make that connection to someone who can help them. Maybe someone is wrestling with big questions about life and amazingly, you read something in the Bible just that morning that addresses these questions perfectly. Maybe someone opens up about a struggle and you've been through the exact same thing and you can share a perspective that 99% of others couldn't. My hope, my belief, my confidence is that if we anticipate God opening these doors, if we expect and stay ready for these opportunities, if we live on mission, then God will lead us into conversations and moments when we are used by him to change people's lives. My friends, it is the greatest honor and joy to be used by God to have a meaningful impact in someone's life. And it takes passion to live on mission. The message of Jesus inspires passion because of its importance, because of its implications, and because of its mission. The message of Jesus has importance, implications, and a mission. And if we lose sight of this, a dispassionate faith starts to rise up. Faith that lacks energy or enthusiasm, a a faith that drifts with the winds. And something that I've often shared and I, I believe is very true and I believe is helpful in this whole idea is that Jesus cannot temporarily be the savior of the world. Jesus cannot temporarily be the savior of the world. If you've ever had a moment where you know that you know that Jesus is who he says he is, if you've ever had a moment where you know that you know that Jesus is indeed the savior of the world, it cannot be true in that moment, but the next day it stopped being true. If you've ever had an encounter, if you've ever been part of a worship service, if you've had a moment driving in your car by yourself, if you've ever had a moment anywhere where God has been so real to you that you know that it is right and it is worth it and is the best thing you can do to leave behind everything to pursue Him, if it's ever been true, it always has to be true. It can't be true on that day, but then the next day it stops being true. If Jesus is indeed the only Son of God who went to the cross and paid the price for you, for me, and for anyone that calls on his name, if that is ever true, it's always true. If it's ever true, Jesus cannot temporarily be the Savior of the world. That should inspire us to keep going in difficult moments. If we've ever had that moment where we've believed the gospel, we know that we know that this is real. God has revealed himself to us in a life-changing way. If it's ever been real, it's always real. I heard a story about four friends that decided to go camping for the weekend. On the drive up, they get into a big argument And they start arguing about who's going to win the Super Bowl, start arguing about the election, and then they start arguing about what happened on Groundhog Day. And the argument's so bad that they they decide they're going to go their separate ways, and they decide to pitch their tents as far away from each other as they can. And when it comes to nightfall, the four friends are miles apart, and it's time to get their fire started. The first guy had a lighter with him. So he gathered some dry leaves and kindling and had a fire roaring soon enough. The second had some matches, but hadn't made a campfire in a while, so he had a frustrating time using this box of matches to try and light a giant log. After using almost the whole box of matches, he finally got it going, and he had himself a campfire. The third friend was a part of Royal Rangers as a kid, 
So even though he had a lighter and some kindling, he decided to light a fire by rubbing two sticks together. It wasn't as easy as he remembered it was as a kid, but after getting a few blisters, he finally got a fire going. And the fourth guy, he'd spent big money on a deluxe campfire starting kit, and he had a fire going before he even got his small stuff ready. Now the four friends, they each got a fire going. It took them various amounts of effort, various amounts of difficulty, different challenges. It took different amounts of time. But now that they have a fire going, they each have a responsibility to keep the fire going. Whatever your life of faith has looked like, whatever difficulties, whatever testimony you have, no matter how it compares to what other people would say about their life and their experience, Whatever it was that God used to get you to the point where you were ready to say yes to Jesus, you now have a responsibility to keep the fire going. I want to share a few ways to keep the fire going. How to build passion. Number one, remember the importance of the gospel. Remember the importance of the gospel. A woman with a bad reputation comes to Jesus and tearfully washes his feet. One of the religious leaders objects to this, and we pick the story up in Luke 7, 41. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. I tell you, her sins, Jesus talking, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. How much have you been forgiven? How much grace has God shown you? How many second chances has God generously and graciously and kindly and lovingly given to you? Remember, do whatever you need to do to remember. Journal, leave reminders around your house, tell and retell your story. As you're reading the Bible, look for things that magnify the gospel, things that remind you, you know what, God has been so kind to me. He has shown me so much forgiveness, forgiveness I never ever deserve. He has given it anyway. Never forget that you are definitively disqualified from having a righteous relationship with God, but because of the love He has for humanity, the love He has for you, He made a way. When we remember this, it fuels the passion that we've been talking about. But when we forget, we forget how importantly we see the message of Jesus and it starts to get distorted. Second thing, how to build passion. Number two, value the implications of the gospel. Value the implications of the gospel. Second Corinthians, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, a new life has begun. From Galatians, But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. And then from Ephesians 4, the practical implications of the gospel. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. 
And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. The gospel makes a difference, and we should be grateful for the difference. Express gratitude for what God has done in prayer and in worship, whether here together or whether it's by yourself at home. Give thanks for the transformation that is happening in your mind and in your heart, the ways that it's showing itself in your conduct. Make a decision in your heart and mind that you're not going to undervalue or underestimate or fail to appreciate the depth of the impact the gospel has made in your life. Following Jesus will absolutely lead to changes in your life, and we should treasure and rejoice about these changes. It's all a part of living in the kingdom of God and in the freedom Jesus came to bring. Don't dismiss and downplay the implications of the gospel. Don't ignore the miraculous ways God has worked in your life. Value the implications of the gospel. How to build passion number three. Enjoy the mission. Enjoy the mission of the gospel. This is Paul speaking in Acts 20. I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. From the book of Proverbs, the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. This is easy to observe that there is joy in helping others. It's amazing that helping others is disguised as sacrifice. It's disguised as hard work. But it is in fact a joy and a privilege. Within the church, there's a place for you. There's a role that I believe if you're fulfilling it, it'll be enjoyable. I hope that your experience on one of our volunteer teams is a true joy. If you're a part of furthering the mission of the church, if you're a part of our volunteer teams, I hope that each and every story and testimony of God using our church to bless or reach people or disciple people, I hope that each of us would take that personally. That God would take our serving and our volunteering or our tithes and our giving and He would use it to change someone's life. That is an honor to be a part of. And even beyond the church walls, beyond Sunday, what opportunities is God lining up for you to make a kingdom difference? In your day-to-day -day life, how can you be salt and light to the world? How can you bring encouragement or help? What practical need can you meet? How can you feed people's curiosity about eternal things? How might the Lord position you to have a meaningful conversation with someone at the perfect time when they need it? Let's live with anticipation. Not that God is going to ask us to do something humiliating or tragic, but that He's lining us up for assignments that each and every believer so that we can make a positive difference to bring about kingdom purpose here on earth. Continuing what Jesus started, that's the annual theme that we presented to the church. It can't just be a slogan. It can't just be empty words. It needs to be who we are, that we are continuing what Jesus started, that that's what drives us, that's what inspires us. It's disguised as sacrifice and hard work, but being a part of God changing lives is the greatest privilege, and I hope that we find joy as we serve Him.
My friends, passionate faith is normal faith. Passion is not measured in endurance. It's measured in endurance, not volume. The message of Jesus inspires passion because of its importance, implications, and mission. And how do we build passion? We remember the importance of the gospel. We value the implications of the gospel, and we enjoy the mission of the gospel. I have some questions for you, and hopefully there's something that's gonna stoke the fire of your passion. The first thing is how desperately do you need the grace and forgiveness of God? How desperately do you need the grace and forgiveness of God? This will help you remember the importance. Second question for you, how has the gospel changed your life? How has the gospel changed your life? This will help you value the implication of the gospel. And in what ways are you a part of the mission? In what ways are you a part of the mission? Perhaps it's here at the church, perhaps it's in your own life, but in what ways are you a part of the mission? And find the joy in the mission. Find out for yourself that it is indeed more blessed to give than it is to receive. And that those that refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Would you stand with me for a moment? We're gonna go into a time of worship in just a moment. The book of Titus, chapter three, verse three. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. The message of Jesus is the greatest news any of us can ever hear. The decision I made 20 years ago, if one person claps, we all have to. But 20 years ago now, the decision I made to follow Jesus is still the greatest decision I will ever make. And I'm convinced it is the best decision I could ever make. And I believe the same is true for you. You may be here and you may be strong in faith. You may have been a believer for a long time, but you may be here and you're not sure. And if I were to ask you eyeball to eyeball, are you following Jesus? You'd kind of feel awkward and uncomfortable about the question. My friend, I want to give you the opportunity to make the best decision you ever can. Every single one of us, there is not an exception. Each and every one of us are disqualified from the grace and the goodness of God. But because of his love, he made it possible. Even though each and every one of us has a list of reasons we are disqualified. The Bible calls it sin. Even though that is the reality for each and every one of us, God, motivated by love, said, I am going to defeat sin once and for all. And I'm going to give humanity a chance to come home. That's why Jesus went to the cross and paid the price that you and I could never pay. I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. But if this is for you and you want, you're ready, you've got to that point in your life where you're ready to make this decision and start following Jesus, I would love to pray for you. So I wanna ask you, if that's you and you're bold enough and you're ready, can you just put your hand up? Just so I know who I'm praying for. If that's you today, if you just put your hand up. Amen, thank you. I appreciate the courage, thank you. Anyone else here? When we pray in a moment, I'd love to know who I'm praying for. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anyone else here? When we pray, and we're going to pray together as a congregation, 
If you want to be included in that prayer, just raise your hand. I'd love to know who we're praying for. Anyone else here before we, before we pray? Amen. Amen. Come on, everyone. Let's celebrate with people making the best decision any of us can make. Well, we're going to put the words on the screen, but there's a prayer that we pray at the end of every service. And I want to encourage everyone here, whether you've prayed this for the first time, whether you're one of those brave people that put their hands up, or whether you've been a part of service for years and you've prayed this prayer dozens of times before, I want each and every one of us to pray this, believing that this prayer has the power to change lives. Amen? Come on, everybody. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, everybody, one more time, let's celebrate with people. Amen.